visits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all of her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All of her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all forsaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads of Zion mourn, for none become have none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captive before the foe. From the daughters of Zion, all of her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuers. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wanderings all the precious things that were hers from the days of old when her people fell into the land of her foe. And there were none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked her at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despised her. For they have seen her nakedness she herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was, was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comfort. Oh, Lord, behold my afflictions, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out her, his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom she, you forbade to enter her congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade her treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am Nobody knows. 
which included a solo in which the, the words from the book of lamination, Lamentations were sung in Hebrew. Uh, he composed it in 1942, and it made its debut in 1944, uh, winning the New York Critics Circle Award <coughs> in the same year. Bernstein's first symphony became such a huge success that he went all around the world to perform it. Boston, New York, St. Louis, of all places, <laughs> Detroit, Prague, and even Jerusalem. Program in the program notice in his 1944 performance in New York, he described the third movement, which is Lamentations, as the cry of Jeremiah as he mourns his beloved Jerusalem, ruined, pillaged, and dishonored after his desperate efforts to save it. The symphony, Jeremiah, is one of the number one uh, symphonies of Bernstein of his works where by his own admission, he, he struggles with his own crisis of faith in the 20th century. So while the, the music, and I listened to it this week, while it was absolutely beautiful, his conclusion as to what is needed really misses the mark. So underneath Bernstein's Jeremiah Symphony was the belief that, quote, a renewal of faith in the modern times requires a return to innocence. The shedding of the trappings of dogma and orthodoxy and a fundamental belief in our common humanity. So do you hear what's underneath this symphony? Bernstein's interpretation of the world is that we need to return to innocence, which is really impossible. We, we need to shed our orthodoxy which is really our foundation of truth. We need to believe in humanity, which I am absolutely scared to. <coughs> Bernstein may be quoting Lamentations, but I'm going to suggest to you that he's not truly lamenting, at least not in the, a biblical kind of framework. So kind of a little bit of recap of where we've been. A, a lament is a heartfelt cry of sorrow, right? It's, it's a crying out. It's a, it's a prayer through which a believer just pours out his or her heart to God because of the struggles and the tension of the pain that is found in this life. Lament struggles with the gap between what the Bible says about God, what we know about Him, and what we experience in this really real world. In a lament, a, a believer asks God, why? How? Where are you? A lament is a God-given expression of our pain, wherein we, we look to Him for all of our answers, our relief, and ultimately we look to Him for our hope. Lament also interprets our pain. It, it's an expression. And in that expression, a lament acknowledges that there's more to life than pain and difficulty. A Christian lament, therefore, kind of deals with more than just the thing that has happened. Often when we're in pain, what do we do? We deal with the thing that has happened. All of our energy, all of our focus, all of our, 
our, our pain, we just go right there, and that's where we kind of hang out. But we also need to look at what lies beneath that pain. There's a specific issue, but the, then that specific issue is the, the reality of the brokenness that is found in our world. And in lament, we are, we are lamenting, we're crying out about the delay of God's final deliverance. We're, we're longing for God. We're in the midst of this pain. Who are you? What is going on? Why are we here? And we are longing for Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Last week, we also learned that lament tunes our heart. It serves to tune our hearts. And entering into lament, it can awaken us to the needs that are around us, to, to, to the remaining brokenness that is in our world right now, or, or to the circumstances that should break our heart, but are not breaking our heart. Last week we, we looked at uh, abortion, we looked at racism, we looked at how we devalue the image of God found in people who struggle with disabilities. And there's a hundred other ways that our heart should break in how we devalue the image of God found in every man, woman, and child. So what does lament do? Lament gives us voice. It gives us voice to, to the tragedy. And in doing so, it reminds us about who we really are and what life is really about. And in that, it also serves as a wake-up call. So the book of Lamentations was written both to give us a voice to the pain of the destruction that is found in Jerusalem and to remind future generations that Judah had reached a point of no return. Lamentations express a sorrow, but it also serves as the red flag warning. Do not go here. These are danger shallows. The undercurrents will sweep you down. Lamentations, especially in chapter 1, shows us the brokenness of our world and the holiness of God. It tunes our heart to the reality and the sorrow of divine judgment. It shows us that grace is only amazing because judgment is absolutely real. That's, what, that's why grace is amazing. Because God's judgment is absolutely real. So chapter 1 serves as an introduction for us to the central themes of the brokenness of our world and the holiness of our God. So let's walk through this, this kind of this poetic chapter together, and we're going to see some of those things. So here's, here's the scene of, of, of this lament. The very first word that you see in our English Bible and is also found in Hebrew serves as the title for this book. It's the word how. How. And, and it's meant to be read both as a question and a shocking statement. 
The author, who I believe is the prophet Jeremiah, even though he's not named at all in this, this book, expresses the sorrow of what has happened. In English, it may express its way itself this way. How did this happen? How? And, and, or it'd be kind of like if I was listening, listening to my wife on the telephone and all of a sudden I hear her say, what? How? Those kind, of, those kind of questions. And when I hear those kind of words with that kind of tone, I know that something is terribly wrong. What? How? And that is the intention of this word in the title for this book. What? How? How is that possible? Now, in case you weren't here with us two weeks ago when we walked through 2 Chronicles 36, the situation in Jerusalem as the southern kingdom of Judea is absolutely devastating. It's hit rock bottom. After multiple kings who were, who were set up were ultimately removed, and after multiple deportations to a foreign land, and after a brutal siege on the city of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem were ultimately penetrated, and the Babylonian army ransacked the city. The temple was stripped of all of its gold, all of its vessels for worship, and along with the rest of the city, it was burnt to the ground. Burnt to the ground. The city, the nation, the, the people of Israel were absolutely devastated. And that is the context for the book of Lamentations. And this first chapter introduces us to the theme and the very tone of this book. This, this Each chapter, just so you know, is an individual lament. Each one is kind of its, its, its own lament. And, and the book reaches its climax and turning point in chapter 3. So it takes a little bit. However, chapters 4 and 5 do not end with a nice, pretty, rosy picture. Not everything is neatly resolved and makes you feel good and warm and fuzzy on the inside. Instead, they end where pain is still lingering. It's still holding on. Lamentations does not resolve in a neat and tidy kind of way like we like it in our North American kind of world, right? Oh, there's a problem. Let's clean it up. Let's address it. Usually that means let's hide it. Let's not address it. And let's keep on going with life with a smile on our face. Lamentations is real. Where there's still lingering pain. We might get through that divorce. We might get through that problem. We might get through that complicated relational situation but there's still lingering pain underneath it all. But yet Lamentations expresses the hope in God's mercy while the suffering is still happening. One other thing you need to know about this chapter is that there are 22 verses and there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with a word whose first letter is the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. What do we call that, teachers? It's, a, it's an acrostic. It's an acrostic poem. A, B, C, D, E, and it starts off like that. So 
language and form are designed to emphasize the very comprehensive nature of Jerusalem's total destruction. This book is more than just a historical record. It is of what happened to the city. It is designed to paint for us a picture and deliver a message with a punch. So the first two verses is a picture of, of, of the city that is is broken, that is a lonely widow whose life has turned from bad to absolutely tragic. Jerusalem used to be full of people. They used to be great among the nations. They used to be a princess among the nations. But now she is alone and she's a slave. Her fall has been an absolutely calamity. It has fallen and she has fallen hard and there is much sorrow. The city is said to be weeping with tears on her cheeks. And she's been abandoned by all of her former lovers. And she's even opposed by her friends. Jerusalem is isolated. It is sorrowful. And she's abandoned. What's more, the people of Judah have been brought into captivity and into exile. This once glorious nation of God's chosen people, his, his, his precious children that he has picked out before the, the foundation of the world is now scattered among the nations. And there is no resting place for them. And she has been overrun by all of her adversaries. Can you feel the weight of the sorrow and the pain? There's no hope. I have no support network left. I was once this, and it has all been taken out. Even you hear here, the roads cry out. In verse 4, things that were once connected to celebration and festivals are now feeling the very pain of rejection. The more roads mourn, the, the festivals are empty, the, the gates that were once thrown open to the festival attendees is now desolate. And the young women no longer rejoice. So central to the pain of this lament is that the enemy has won. Verse 5 even goes so far to say that the enemy has not only won, but they prosper. It's like adding salt to a wound, right? Not only does that hurt, but man, they're just pouring salt in. blessing of God has seemed to fall on their enemies, the enemies of God's And the lament presses this even further by saying, why? Because the Lord has afflicted her. Why are my enemies prospering? Because God has brought down his judgment. Here's, here's a great tension between the sorrows of our life and the sovereignty of God in all things. Jeremiah has no problem identifying that while Babylon was the means by which something happened, God ultimately was behind the destruction of Jerusalem. And we see why in verse 5. For the multitude of her transgressions. This is one, one of the ways that Lamentations feels very different 
Job, right? In the book of Job, there, we, we can see that there's kind of two distinct categories for suffering and lament in these books. One we see in the book of Job, Job was a righteous man, right? He was holy man, and he was blessed by God, and he had done absolutely nothing wrong. While Lamentations, we see national suffering because of their guilt. That makes Lamentations kind of challenging for me and for you in some ways, because I'm sure that there were probably some people in <coughs> Jerusalem who were trying to be faithful. They wanted to be faithful. They, they were listening to Jeremiah's warnings after warnings after warnings. And they were praying for repentance. Oh, Lord, bring, bring my neighbors, my friends, all these people to, to repentance. Come, may they come back to you. May they turn their eyes to you, not to the things of this world. But they were affected directly and significantly by the city's destruction. Lamentation shows us that sometimes innocent, righteous people are still affected by the consequences of national or cultural sins. We can see it today, right? We see it all over. We are affected, even though you may be righteous and loving Jesus and serving him with all your heart, and you are repenting of your sins and you're turning your eyes from the things of this world to the things of Christ, and you're doing all those things. You are still affected by our national and cultural sins. And this book reminds us that sin is more than just an individual issue. It's not just between me and Jesus. There is something absolutely broken in our world, our culture, our nation. And my sin is not the only problem. Finally, we see that this, sin, this scene ends with part of the reason why this book of Lamentations written. It was written so that we might remember. In verse 7, the city is portrayed as one who thinks back to the glory days of Israel. The precious things that were hers were falling into the hands of their enemies. We get a quick glimpse into the value of this book and into divine we're reminded about God's former favor over the children of Israel. The pain of the moment is meant to awaken our heart as to who we are and who God is. So what lies underneath this lament? What is the reason for the calamity? And how does even the prophet Jeremiah interpret this disaster that he is watching? Verses 8 through 11 provide the background of the reason for the destruction of the city and the nation. And this lament does more than just mourn the state of the city. It also laments what is underneath the destruction of the city and the nation. It laments the sinfulness of the nation. the 
25 introduces the cause of her multitude, the multitude of her transgressions. And we see this repeated again in verse 8. Jerusalem sinned. How did it sin in, in verse 8? It, it, she sinned grievously. So in other words, the thing is bad. No, it's really bad. And what were some of the ways that Jerusalem had sinned? To answer that question, we kind of have to go back to the book of Jeremiah, the second chapter of, of Jeremiah. The, the books are kind of interconnected, and it's good for you to kind of understand the background. So I'm just saying, give you a few of his warnings that he gave in Jeremiah chapter chapter 2. It's kind of a summary of what the, the people of Judah had, had rejected. In, in Jeremiah 2, 5 through 8, it says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Oh, ouch! You know? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led, led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, and in the land of drought and deep darkness, in the land that none passes through, where no man dwells? I brought you into a land of plentiful, a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my inheritance an abomination. Jeremiah talks about the new covenant and the ultimate hope that one day 
day would come at the cross of Jesus Christ, where a person could be born again and become a child of God from the inside
yet they refuse to listen. Isn't that just like us? You hear it Sunday after Sunday, don't you? But what do we do? Verses 15 through 17, it is clear that the people feel 
They feel it in their bones, a divine rejection. They've lost the battle. They are crushed. They are weeping with absolutely no sense of comfort. And God has temporarily turned against his own people such that Jerusalem has become a filthy thing. But verse 18 is the turning point. Look at it. Let me just read it real quick. And these are hard words to say, you know, even as a kid, right? The Lord is right. For I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you people and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. So it, what, what is he doing right there? After rehearsing all the facts of what has happened to the people of God, he now comes to the acknowledgement and the confession that the Lord ultimately is right. It's a stunning statement, especially in light of what has been said earlier. Jeremiah is drawing a straight line from their suffering to their rebellion, and he gives it even more color in verse 19. I, I, I even called out to my lovers. And what did my lovers do? They deceived me. They deceived me. There's no doubt in his mind as to the connection of their suffering and its relationship to their spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. That's really what sin is, isn't it? It's, it's spiritual adultery. Judah, 
that he is a very just God. And the lament concludes with a longing for God's final word to be spoken. And the lamenter's absolute exhaustion, he desires that God adjusts the scales of justice for them to be fully balanced again. We see that in verse 22. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. God, be just. Balance the scales once again. I felt the heat of your discipline. Balance these scales. So this is more than just a prayer of retribution. God, get them. Jeremiah is wrestling with the waywardness of God's people, and he's longing for every bit of waywardness in the world to be dealt with once for all. Lamenting divine judgment has expressed his sorrow. He's interpreted the cause, and it has turned his heart to God. second thing 
twice more. And we should. We should love those words. We should love to celebrate these kinds of things. But we also need to be reminded that there is something underneath these words. Redemption is only necessary. Why? And grace is only amazing. Why? And forgiveness is only needed. Why? Because God is holy. And because divine judgment is part of the very fabric of the universe. The cross of Jesus Christ is necessary. Why? Because our sin is so wretched. And because God is absolutely righteous. So when we sing songs like Amazing Grace, Saved a wretch like me. Do you get it? Amazing grace. I, I don't deserve what you have given me. I deserve hell. I deserve to be isolated. I deserve to be far from God. But you know what? I have received amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Yes, I am a wretch. Then let me give you the list.
fourth lesson, we learned that confession tunes our heart. And I want you to consider afresh the role of confession in your relationship with the Lord. I, I wonder how many times or, or how much thought energy you have put into confession this week. I'm willing to bet on a scale of 1 to 10, it's about 0.5. A real confession. Oh man, I'm sorry, honey. I didn't mean to do that. That's not confession. That's escaping the wrath of a spouse. Confession means to say the same thing about your sin that God has to say. I hate it. I hate the sin that indwells in me. I hate it, God. I hate it. And God goes, I know. I do too. I hate sin. It means to say that I am in the wrong, God. And in many respects, this happens in the first chapter. What happens in the first chapter helps us tune our hearts to not only what is happening in Jerusalem, but what is happening in our own lives and all around us all the time. I wonder if the Lord is trying to get your attention today. Is he using the circumstances in your life right now to awaken you, to wake you up to a bad path that, that you're on? Is he, is he waking you up? Is he trying, is he using this message to prick your heart, to be broken and to be contrite before him? And just, God, I hate this. I hate the sinfulness in our world. I hate the sin that I've committed. I hate the sin that has been committed against me. God, I hate this. And I confess this. And is God calling you? Is he calling our church? Is he, is he calling our city? Is he calling our nation to confess? See, confession is the lament that tunes our very hearts to the brokenness of sin in light of the holiness of God. It's the moment when we individually or we corporately say, the Lord is right. The Lord is right, and I've rebelled against his word. And because of Jesus, we know this. And this is something that we need to know when we come to the Lord's Supper in just a minute. That if we confess our sins, when we say, God, you're right, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does lament do? Lament tunes our hearts to hear the message Friends, we, we come to this, this meal to be people, we come to this meal and we, we need to be people who are confessing our sins. We, we just don't come up here because it's tradition. We don't come up here because, oh, it's the right thing to do and people will have to step over me. So maybe I should get up and go. No, we, we come to this table knowing that God is holy and that he is 
given us a pathway. He has given us the righteousness of Christ. But he also requires us to come up here confessing our sins. And say, God, you are right. And I, I hate sin as you hate sin. So before you come this morning, take a moment. Examine your heart. And if you are in Christ, you, friends, this is a time to come forward joyfully and be fed by this gospel that you've heard. But if there is unconfessed or resilient sin in your life that you are unwilling to give up, you may receive it. Otherwise, all are welcome. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the meal, 